Welcome to the Synaxis Podcast. A Synaxis is a liturgical gathering. It can also refer to an unveiling event. The Synaxis Podcast is a weekly gathering hosted by yours truly, Scott Jones, for the purpose of finding the life-giving healing word of the gospel and the words of the weekly lectionary passages. Join myself and a guest each week as we explore the lectionary text together. This is the place for gospel-rich, grace-saturated, and a properly worldly lens on the week's lectionary passages, all in 25 minutes or less. My guest is Frederick Schmidt. He holds the Reuben P. Job Chair in Spiritual Formation and directs the Reuben P. Job Institute for Spiritual Formation at Garrick Evangelical Theological Seminary in Evanston, Illinois. An Episcopal priest, spiritual director, and retreat leader, he is the author of seven books, including When Suffering Persists and What God Wants for Your Life. Fred and his wife, Natalie, live in Chicago with their Gordon Center, Hilda. I give you Fred Schmidt. Fred, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. It's good to be here, Scott. Yeah, our paths crossed, never in class, but I remember seeing you at Messiah College and talking with friends about your classes there and friends who liked them very much. So there you go. Oh, it's good to hear after all these years. It's been a long time. It's nice to catch up with, with even someone who was there at the same time, even if you weren't in class. So <laughs> Exactly, exactly. Well, hey, let's look at Advent. Here we go. Advent 3, we've got our first text here, Isaiah 61. So... If Jesus starts out his ministry with this text, at least in Luke's gospel, right, there's got to be something preachable there. If it's good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for us. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Uh, And and this is kind of an interesting text, and and this Advent's been an interesting one for me because I've been thinking about what a general orientation to the Advent text might be that helps bring home something that's intrinsic to the text's but that gets at the material in some sort of fresh way. And I struggle with that a little bit, if nothing, by proxy, because my wife is a rector of an Episcopal parish. So I watch her work through these texts all the time, and we find ourselves talking about them. Uh, and And I think that one of the things that really strikes me about the Advent texts in general this year sort of fits against the backdrop of what we do and don't do with the gospel message in general. Uh, I find myself telling the students a lot these days that I think that fundamentally we really preach from these texts from an anthropocentric point of view and from a pragmatic point of view. Evangelicals want to tell you, you know, you embrace the truth of these passages and your personal life will change and you will you will flourish and you'll be well grounded. Uh, so-called progressives grapple with these texts and say, here are messages that will reform the world that we live in and what we'll get out of them is social change. And uh, those two messages, I think, have been kind of countervailing messages since the 1930s and the modernist fundamentalist controversy. But I think that actually one way of kind of getting at these texts is to really ask the question, what is God doing? In other words, to talk about a more theocentric approach rather than anthropocentric approach. I saw someone tweet something out, and I'm not. I'm going to forget who it was. I'll look it up later. But it, they said in Advent, maybe we should focus less on the faith, like the 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 nature of our waiting, and more on the faithfulness of His coming. 
Right. And I thought, and that's something like, it's interesting, right? Because when you're talking about your wife as a rector, I think Advent is so counterintuitive for your average. Well, I thought he already came, and yet we're waiting for him to come. I mean, I mean, for the average Christian, it takes a sort of sci-fi kind of time continuum kind of thing, uh, which ultimately leads us to try to almost, well, let's put ourselves back before the Christ event. And kind of, you know what I mean? I, I think that that, I think you're absolutely right about that, that emphasis. Yeah. And, and I think too, that if, if you approach it that way, and I, and I find myself thinking about this, not just from the vantage point of biblical studies, which was my original training, but my current sort of disciplinary work, which is focused on spirituality. I think actually there's an invitation here to sort of ask, how am I available to the work of God? And of course, that's what is here in Lot in uh, Isaiah. There's a series of, of infinitives uh, that Isaiah uses uh, to proclaim liberty, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, to provide for those who mourn in Zion. Uh, and it's about the activity of God and about participating in that activity of God. And uh, and Advent as a season is really about preparing ourselves to be available to that kind of work. It's, it has really penitential uh, sort of overtones in terms of the way it's been practiced in the life of the church. Yeah, it's interesting. I just heard this story about these 500 and, and some 513 American allied prisoners of war who survived um, the Baton Death March only to have the Japanese then imprison them in the Philippines. <laughs> and those prisoners almost gave up hope after three years of horrendous um, captivity. And, you know, they're malnourished, you know, many are w- awaiting execution. And on January th- uh, 1945, 121 American army rangers emerged from the jungle surrounding the prison camp. And, um, in this book, this is kind of a ghost soldiers, they report slowly the, the awareness that this jailbreak was beginning to sink in among the rest of the prisoners. And one prisoner wrapped his arms around the neck of the first ranger he saw and kissed him on the forehead. The guy's name was Alvy Robbins. And he said to this ranger, Alvy Robbins, the prisoner said, I thought we'd been forgotten. Mm-hmm. And Robbins said, no, you're not forgotten. We've come to you. And as I'm thinking of like the original audience of this prophecy of Isaiah, right? It's pre- probably people that at times were feeling forgotten. Right? Um, and yet the, the whole Hebrew Bible says, you know, re- the Lord, you know, remembers you. The Lord, right? and, but yet it's, it's hard. It's hard to remember that the Lord remembers, right? <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> well, especially when you take into account the fact that, that for God, time is not the same sort of thing that it is for us. I had a colleague years ago who had a sign on the, on his door, a Lutheran colleague that said, time is God's way of keeping everything from happening all at once. And, and of course, it doesn't happen all at once for us, but in a way, it does for God. Mm. And so another way of kind of thinking about these issues and thinking about the work of God is to think about how very different God's perspective is and how the kind of change and transformation in the coming of the kingdom that Jesus declares using words of the prophecy of Isaiah is is really about a kind of transformation that in some senses is incomplete, and yet in God is complete, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's really interesting because Jesus, when he preaches this text, he leaves out 
the word about judgment. He says he's coming to bring good news to the poor, release to the captives, but he doesn't talk about the year of vengeance, right? And it's interesting because Paul Zoll in his little book, The First Christian, points out that and it's one of the things when I read it, I thought, why haven't I thought about this before? But like, I didn't. He said, you know, John's John the Baptist, who we'll come to in a minute in our gospel text, but John the Baptist preached a typical kind of apocalyptic Second Temple message, like, not yet, but soon. Like, get ready. And Jesus changed that to already, not yet. And Zal thinks that ultimately that makes space for this whole kind of Augustinian, Lutheran, Pauline, like um, kind of a, a, a saint on the way, <laughs> the sign of the, the at the same time sinner and saint. That it's not it's not either or. Like you know, hurry up, clean yourself up because it's coming soon. It's come and yet it's on the way. Right, right. Yeah, and and I think it's important for people to remember that really. And one of the analogies I sort of use for that already not yet uh, picture of things is I, I sometimes say to students the sun is dawning at the beginning of the morning and there are still pools of darkness and shadows at high noon that light will fill the landscape and that's kind of the transformation that we're really waiting for and the transformation that isaiah anticipates i think another thing worth thinking about a passage like this scott against the background or the backdrop of your observation about our impatience with it all is of course in some ways the fact that god continues to struggle with us and strive with us embraces an ever larger number of generations and an ever larger cohort of human beings and and ways of living and so in some ways our sort of preoccupation with it needing to be over now or needing to be over soon is a, a sort of deeply self-invested sort of way of thinking about the work of God. Yeah, I remember the first time I ever sat and talked to Robert Jensen in Princeton, I was asking about his views on evil and predestination. And he said, well, it doesn't seem like there's a way to have a history without evil. And he has to have a history because he wants to include you. And I thought it was so simple and elegant. And I thought, wow, this is a theological Jedi. <laughs> Speaking of the day of the Lord, evil and patience, let's go on to First Thessalonians, the end of the letter. Okay. You know, this is, um, I, I, it's interesting because I, I, I assume a lot of people will in, either will touch on Isaiah or make Isaiah uh, the theme of their sermon on Sunday if they preach the lectionary. Right. Uh, I, th- I think, you know, there, there will be just as many probably that will focus on the gospel. I would say this will be the minority report. <laughs> you think so? <laughs> people that will talk. About Thessalonians. Well, part of the problem, I think, and and I'm sorry, this is a bit of a wrap on the revised common lectionary. Part of the difficulty is is that the way the lectionary has been edited this time around, you get a lot of passages like this that include uh, benedictions and include fragments of the sort of argument that you see in the epistles. And I would say one thing about preaching this kind of material is that preachers ought to feel welcome to sort of expand on the lectionary or to give the treatment of the lectionary a somewhat larger context in order to be able to kind of use it for sermon purposes. Because a lot of the literature from the epistles has been edited in a way that it makes it difficult to preach from it. 
Yeah, I, I think that's that's true. I, I mean, the, the importance of contextualizing, uh, it, it, absolutely, and, and some of it too, right? You could. This text is full of imperatives, which could, as you say, lead people to, you know, one camp of the church in in North America probably wants to read the imperatives one way, another read them the other way. And you can forget about the indicatives that they flow from, right? Really, the Christian life ideally is descriptive, not prescriptive. You know, it moves from when you get it and the indicative you're being in Christ to, wow, this is spilling over into my life. (laughs) Right, right. And that sort of emphasis is present in every Pauline epistle. There's a movement from the indicative mood verbs to the imperative mood, which I think also sort of suggests one thing that's really important for preachers to sort of emphasize or to weave into their preaching is the connection between the truths of the Christian faith and the behavior that issues from it. You you need to have both, and they flow from one another. This particular passage, I think one of the things that's interesting about it are the imperatives, do not quench the spirit, do not despise the words of the prophet, but test everything, hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. There are those who think this is sort of a shorthand piece of catechesis that is embedded in the letter that was easy to remember, that governed the shape of worship and the life of the community. Uh, and of course, it it is the kind of behavior that then gives way to the benediction that follows, may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit, soul, and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's a kind of deep connection there. Yeah, and I think of, you know, Jonathan Edwards' religious affections, you know, and, and his kind of conception that all sin is some form of unbelief, right? And and so, because I think about then how the text concludes, now the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may, and then he talks about, um, uh, or right before that, wait, uh, no, yeah, completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. So, I mean, I wonder if so much of, like, the Christian life is figuring out uh, where you're, where one lacks faith <laughs> and how it manifests itself and then seeing how, like, the, the reality of, of the one who's faithful and is coming and, and figuring out the picture of that faithfulness one needs at the moment, you know? Well, I think that that's true. And I think that that's one way of thinking about it. Another way of thinking about it, too, is the the whole question of what is the purpose of Christian existence. In the Orthodox tradition, of course, it's theosis. It's living ever more deeply into the life of God. And the language of sanctification, which gets used a lot in the Methodist tradition, is about this sort of increasing hold that a love of God and a love of the things of God has on your life. And so it's also about sort of asking what's the what's the real lifelong agenda for the Christian? Hmm. 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 Yeah, and what do you think Paul says it is here in the end of 1 Thessalonians? Well, I think here it's it's about the steady sanctification of the whole of your life. And interestingly hmm. enough, Paul's not going to buy into any kind of dualism. It's the sanctification of spirit, soul, and body. So it's it's a kind of comprehensive embrace of the life of God on that takes hold in the life of the believer. And in that regard, he's he's a good Jew. Uh, yeah. When when Scripture in the Old Testament, in the Book of Deuteronomy, says you shall 
love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strengths, that sort of final emphasis that gets translated strength in a number of English translations it actually froze up in the on Hebrew me there, means all your everything. So Paul's really reflecting deep tradition in that regard. And and that what Paul is reflecting back here um, to the church in Thessalonica is this emphasis on the comprehensive demand that the faith makes on their lives. Thinking back to the book of Deuteronomy, where the Israelites are told, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The word strength there in most English translations reflects all your everything as a kind of comprehensive way of thinking about this demand. And I think that that lies very closely to the purpose of human flourishing in God. Now, I, I want to like crib all that through your theocentric lens and my crypto-Lutheran lens through an American saint, St. Eugene Peterson, who said, um, discipleship is focusing more and more on Christ's righteousness and less and less on your own. Yeah. And I, I think there is something to that where, where the kind of following after doesn't become like navel gazing or the, or, or the kind of self-righteousness of the right or the left, but a real following after in a way that's, that, that's there, where there's a blessed self-forgetfulness. Hopefully. Yes. Yeah. Well, and, and from a Christian point of view, the, what's back of some of the language too is the conviction that, that righteousness, mercy, grace, love, a capacity for forgiveness, all of those characteristics are only found in their fullness in God. There's no human program for any of those characteristics that expresses it in all of its fullness. So from the vantage point of the individual who longs to be deeply connected with God, but also deeply and rightly connected with others, the journey into God is by definition necessary if if you're going to have that experience in all of its fullness. Speaking of the fullness, let's go to the gospel reading, John 1. <laughs> right. Which takes us to the uh, the summary, the intro to the, yep. the fullness here. And one of the things I like about this one, and this goes back to the emphasis on a theocentric reading of the Advent text, is that John the Baptist is really the individual who is available to the purposes of God in a way that is a good model for all of us. He is. He is not. The my 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 sartorial sensibilities would preclude that. I mean, the 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 sure, even my I guess my culinary ones. I'm not a foodie, but this sounds Spartan to me. I mean, well, it's absolutely Spartan, and I always laugh about preachers who say that they are prophetic preachers because no, don't sign me up. No, no, not me. I'll take priestly if I can get it. High priest is perfect, but even if I'm just like John's dad, right, was probably just a, like a ro rotating in and out. I'm sure he lived a good life. And I'm sure that's part of the tragic part of the story, right? You had this birth of this child you pray for, and it's a sign. I mean, it's a miracle in some sense, maybe not akin to the virgin birth or something, but definitely there's some, there seems to be something supernatural here. And it seems like his whole ministry is almost like an F you to his dad, who's a man of the temple, and say, hey, no, that's not where you find God, where my dad put in his hours. You got to come back out. You got to come out to the wilderness, like before we even got in the land to begin with. I mean, that just seems like so tragic. 
Well, and it certainly is about sort of the radical nature of the demand that God makes on John. I'm not sure it's a, it's a complete rejection of the temple or of priesthood. I think that both in the prophetic literature and even in the teaching of Jesus, the problem with the temple is that it's, it's not dedicated fully to the purposes of God. And the problem with priests is they aren't as much like priests as they ought to be. But that said, I think that one of the sort of truths about the Christian life that John models is this complete surrender to the purposes of God. And in thinking about it for purposes of a sermon, I think it's also important to remember that he he does that without the consciousness of a completed gospel narrative like the one that we bring to these texts. He's out there risking it all, anticipating the coming of the Messiah and putting himself out there, as you point out, beyond the support of the institutional religion of his day and risking it all in anticipation of the work that God is going to do. And we get this phrase, right? He was not the light, but a witness to light. But elsewhere, Jesus calls him a lamp, which is not the source of light in some ways, but it does radiate light, right? It's not light itself. I wonder, is this the problem we have? Like we have one a certain faction of Christianity, and I'm thinking of a certain kind. A lot of people, and most of them I know, come from. Gen, I'm, I'm overgeneralizing, but come from conservative backgrounds and get some advanced education, and they realize that kind of old school positivist inerrancy won't sustain faith anymore. So they trade that in for a really muscular positivistic ecclesiology, and and they wind up sort of with this. You know, the church becomes the light, uh, as opposed to other people where it's almost like the only church is the invisible church and everything gets kind of spiritualized and Gnosticized. And I wonder, it seems like John is a, I mean, there's this recognition that he's not the light and yet his witness to it is taken seriously. Yes, I think that's true. And of course, John is really struggling and and probably at various stages in its editing was struggling, first of all, with a addressing its relationship to the Jewish community, and then later perhaps in relationship to Gnosticism. So I think that that's probably what's at work there. And then, you know, so in the beginning we get this text about him and the light, and then it's interesting, right, because we get this interesting, strange, uh, they say, who are you? He says, no, this is great. You must have a decent self-esteem. You're saying, I'm not the Christ, if that's what you're asking. (laughs) Like, I mean, I hope nobody. I hope. I hope nobody um, quickly asks that if somebody comes to who are you? Um, it's like, I, I once a colleague and I once uh, we were in a non-denominational church in a warehouse, and this couple came. They were like, "Do you preach the gospel here?" And they're thinking that's not a question meant to elicit information because what are we going to say? No, <laughs> it happened once eight months ago. We got to commit it together. Never again. <laughs> but then he says, "I'm not." Are you the prophet? He says, "No." Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us, which is interesting, a sent message play, because it's so much in the Gospel of John, who sends who. Um, I'm the voice crying um, in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. And then they ask him, then why are you baptizing if you're neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? That's an interesting question. Then what are you baptizing for? Because you had three, three, there's three answers <laughs> which would justify you and this water. <laughs> And you, so that's interesting. I mean, so is this, are they asking that because 
the baptism would be a symbol of sort of a, of a decisive kind of repentance that if you're not if you're not putting the engine in motion what are you doing this for i mean what why why would that be the question well i think i think that that probably is is really why they ask the questions that they do and why they offer the various alternatives that they offer to him as possible ways of answering those questions and that is, is that they saw them as one and the same so their question is how can you possibly uh, be doing this out in the wilderness. I, I think, too, you know, of course, what John is is working out, too, in all of this is the gift of the Spirit, which eventually, toward the end of John's gospel, will be given to the church, to the disciples, and then to the church in a decisive fashion. And really understanding what the relationship is all about with Christ and understanding the nature of the gospel is tied pretty deeply to that to that gift not just in John but in Luke Acts as well it's interesting i find like I, I think a lot of people when they come into christian faith or they start reading the bible seriously they they love john and then john seems to be kind of well it's not as they start studying the bible but ah that's kind of mark this is where the action is and then i i find like i i've come back to john um there's just so much there that's interesting rich deep i mean i i think early christians particularly evangelicals because of the i am statements go to john go to john but there's just a lot interesting there right well, it is really interesting, and it's rich because of the history of the gospel and probably the multiple communities to which it was addressed growing out of the tradition. I think that in that regard, the early church had a much healthier attitude toward Scripture in general and saw it as a rich family narrative and understood the inspiration of Scripture in that regard as a, as a gift of the Spirit. And I think that for a lot of people who kind of first come to it with some, some pretty narrow notions of inspiration and revelation, then catapult back and forth between a gospel like John on the on the merits of its theological content. No, let's look at Mark because of its potentially early sort of witness to Jesus and his teaching. And I think that that kind of catapulting back and forth between the gospel text betrays misunderstanding of how Scripture is meant to work in the church. So I'm thinking, you know— we talked a little bit about you know the prisoners. This good news to the prisoners, um, the captives. I was thinking of those World War II folks. I'm thinking of people like Thessalonica who might have felt forgotten, and even John imprisoned is wondering, um, you know, are, are you the one <laughs> uh, to come, or should we expect another? And like, if there was this um, correspondence a few years ago that was unearthed between Dietrich Bonhoeffer and his fiance Maria von uh, Vedmeier, which was. Um, just 12 days before Christmas and soon, you know, not long before he'd be executed. And he wrote to his fiance, dearest Maria, let us celebrate Christmas. Don't entertain any awful imaginings of me and my cell, but remember that Christ too frequents prisons and that he will not pass me by. That's really powerful. Fred, thanks for talking about these texts with me. Thanks, Scott. It was good talking with you about them too. Yeah. And I'll have you back. We'll do it again soon. I'll look forward to it. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Synaxis Podcast. If you like what you heard, please go to iTunes, give it a rating, write a review, and subscribe, or pass it along to a friend via email, or say something about it 
on social media. All of those things help so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks again to Fred for being on the podcast, and thanks again to you for listening. Until next time, friends, fare thee well and have a blessed Advent.